But as we come to uh, Luke chapter 24, uh, at the beginning of Luke chapter 24, Jesus uh, uh, ascends. Uh, excuse me, he, he is resurrected. He comes out of the grave. Now as we come back to Luke 24, verse 53, uh, pick it up in verse 50. It says, uh, when he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up uh, uh, his hands and blessed them. This is Jesus with his disciples. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple praising God. Now jump over a chapter into Acts chapter 1. Go, go, jump over a book in a chapter of Acts chapter 1. This is picking it up in verse 9. This is Luke retelling the ascension story. It says, after he said this, uh, he was taken up before, his, before their very eyes, and a cloud um, hid him from their sight. And they were looking intently up into the sky. And as they were going, when, he, when suddenly two men dressed uh, in white stood beside them, said, men of Galilee... He said, he said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who was taken from you into heaven will come back someday uh, and uh, he will come back in the same way that you have seen him go into heaven. Now, so as you look at those two incidences, uh, uh, Jesus is, has said, I must go into heaven. And uh, the disciples sitting there watching him. Then the, then the uh, two men come and say, hey, why do you guys stand here looking into heaven? Why are you guys always, you know, in other words, go do what, go do what you're supposed to do. What were you supposed to do? The Great Commission. I remember reading a story years ago. I don't even remember where I read this. It was D.L. Moody. Uh, D.L. Moody, how many of you know him? Great evangelist, preacher. He was preaching revivals at different places. And, and somehow he came back around uh, to either preach a revival or one of the same places or encountered somebody who he had led to the Lord like in a... Um, uh, in, a, in a revival six months earlier or something like that. And the guy said, D.L. Moody, it might have been on a train, I just remember the story. And the guy says, hey, I have been on a mountaintop experience ever since I got saved when you preached, you know, whenever it was. And D.L. Moody asked the guy, said, that's great. How many people have you led to the Lord? And uh, the guy says, well, none. And uh, D.L. Moody said, well, I'm not a big fan of that kind of mountain. He says, one, we get so far up into heaven that we are no earthly good. That's kind of that old phrase and that old, old idea. And the point is, uh, D.L. Moody apparently goes on and he talks to him as he's sharing the story, that, that the real measure of our love for Christ is not when we stand and look into heaven. It's when we look at the world and think about how can I reach someone with the same gospel that led me to faith and forgiveness. Does that make sense? And I think even within that, that that's probably a pretty good challenge for us today, right? Um, I mean, we can, we can go to all the Bible studies we want. We can worship all we want. We can do all the things we want. But the measure of the mountaintop experience for us spiritually really comes, when's the last time you've invited a lost neighbor to church? When's the last time you've reached out to someone? When's the last time you've really participated in an event uh, that would lead someone else to faith in the Lord? When's the last time? Does that make sense? And I think that's a challenge for us. So as we, even as we look today and we talk about the ascension, and uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about it, and then I'm going to say, what is Jesus doing? I'm just going to kind of give you a, a theology of Christ in heaven uh, and some conversations. But we also want to ask ourselves, man, 
am I, am I like those guys just gazing into heaven waiting for my day, the day that I die? Or am I about the Great Commission? And I, hopefully that'll challenge each of us to, yeah, we need to gaze. We need to gaze in worship. We need to study God's Word. We need to gaze in prayer. But we also then need to take our eyes off uh, the risen Christ from time to time, not our hearts off Him, our eyes off, and look at the world around Him and think about those things. And so let me give you a couple of thoughts. Go back to Acts chapter 9. That'll be our base. That'll be our base passage. Uh, it says, after he had said this, he was taken up before their eyes, uh, and a cloud um, hid him from their sight. Now, as we think about the ascension, let me just read a couple of things for you. Uh, in John chapter 6, this is Jesus uh, prophesying about his ascension. He had been telling them over and over again, I'm going to go to heaven, I'm going to go to heaven, I'm going to go to heaven. In John chapter 6, verse 62, Jesus says, What if you see the Son of Man ascended where he was before? He's telling them, what, God, what are you guys going to do if all of a sudden the Christ that you see now goes back to where he was before? And where was he before? That's John 6. John chapter 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Right? Up into heaven. He says, Guys, what are you all going to do? Because there's going to come a day when I'm going to go back to where I came from. Uh, if you look just one chapter over in John chapter 7, verse 33, Jesus said, I am with you, but only for a short time. And then I have to go back to the one who sent me. So what was Jesus even well before his uh, death, burial, and resurrection? He was telling them, guys, I'm only with you a short time. Learn everything you can, and then you're going to be on your own. But you're not going to be totally on your own because I'm going to leave you a helper, right? We're going to read about that here in a second. So it's not that these disciples were surprised when Jesus was ascended into heaven, but it was that they needed to be reminded of what Christ had told them before, that this is exactly what he shared with them. All right, now if you jump down uh, to John chapter 16, go to John chapter 16, verse 7. Jesus tells them why he's going back to heaven. Jesus tells him why he's going back to heaven. We're in John chapter 16. John 16, verse 7. Here's what Jesus said. Here's my purpose. Here's why I'm going to go. Uh, what were the disciples wanting? They were wanting, hey, just stay here with us, right? Just stay here with us. This is great. Uh, we can get food whenever you need to make food. If we need to walk across the water, we can walk across the water. If we have storms in our life, you can calm them. But notice in John chapter 16, verse 7, Jesus said, But I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the counselor, this translation says, cannot come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jump over one chapter, John chapter 17, verse 4. He says, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work uh, you gave me to do. This is Jesus in his high priestly prayer. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. So Jesus basically said, there are two reasons I'm going back to heaven. One is I'm going to send the Holy Spirit back, the counselor, the comforter back to you. And he goes, I'm also going to return to my former glory, right? He says, I'm going to go back to where I was. What had happened when Jesus was on the earth? He took on humanity. Uh, he got hungry. He got tired. We talked about that. 
uh, this weekend when we talk about Jesus calm the storm. He was exhausted. Uh, he thirsted. He died. He sweat, right? He bled. All of those things. Imagine that for the God of the universe, the creator of the universe. Man, those were 33 years where he had taken on things that the God of the universe had never experienced really like we experienced, but he did exactly like we did. And now he gets to go back to his glory. If you go look at Philippians chapter 2, what did Paul say? He says, man, um, don't go there. Let me just tell you what it says. Um, Jesus said, Paul's talking about Jesus. He says he was in the very form of God, but he took on the humility. He humbled himself to take the very form of mankind, humanity, right? But then if you read on to verse 10 and 11, and now God has highly exalted him again, brought him back to his glory, that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess, right? So Jesus was in all of his glory while he was on earth. He took on humanity. He hungered. He was weak. He would get exhausted. He died. Uh, he was delivered to the hands of sinful men. Then he went back to glory. And part of the purpose that the disciples didn't fully understand and they didn't want him to, they wanted to keep Jesus with him. But Jesus says, I'm going to go to you because I'm going to send you a helper. This translation said counselor. Um, it's really talking about the Holy Spirit, right? That when Jesus was on earth, how many places could he be at one time in his humanity? Essentially one. When he went back in his physical body to heaven and he sent the Holy Spirit, where can the Holy Spirit be? In every one of us at all times, in every space, in every place on the other side of the earth, uh, it would be awesome if Jesus were still alive, if he was a member of this church, right? But it wouldn't be that awesome if Jesus was still alive and he was a member of a church on the other side of the world, right? We would want him to be here. However, the Holy Spirit is a member of this church. And he draws us and he, draw, he draws each and every one of us. More importantly than that, Jesus said, I'm gonna, it's better that you, I go because when I heal, send the Holy Spirit, he can seal you until the day of redemption. And so the disciples didn't see that it was better for Jesus to leave, but it actually was. And that's the way we are sometimes in storms and difficulties and uh, even things that are going on in the church right now. We really can't see what's better, but I'll tell you what I truly believe. Here's what I know. Every room in this building is about to get better. We just got to get through this storm. And so the disciples, they just stood there and looked. And so you and I want to make sure that we don't just stand there and look because the Holy Spirit has been given to us and the same power we have that opportunity to share the gospel and begin to share it with other people. Now, as you, um, as you jump down, uh, as ever, so where did Jesus go? This is kind of, I want to get to, to a couple of things where people can kind of get confused. Where did Jesus go? You don't have to jump there. Stay in John. Uh, where did Jesus go? I'll jump over. Let me read Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24. It says, for Christ, um, Christ did not enter uh, a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of a true one, talking about the ones down here. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. So Jesus, where did he go? He went back to God's presence. He went back to the heavenlies. Now go to John chapter 14, verse 2. You're right there in John, so stay there in John chapter 14. Where is Jesus now? He says, in, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. 
And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that there you may be also. So Jesus has gone back to heaven, right? What's he doing? He's representing us to God, and he's preparing a place for us, all right? He's preparing a place for us. We've all seen, uh, heard, heard them sing about or talk about, uh, we're each going to get a mansion, right? We're all going to get a mansion in the sky, and I know some of y'all have defined it. You've told me you want to be at the end of a cul-de-sac and a really nice, uh, lot, lots of acreage there in heaven. Uh, uh, it's kind of interesting, but if you look at that word, uh, preparing a place, a home for us, it doesn't talk about an estate. It's kind of almost more like apartment living, so I think we're almost kind of like going to be in the inner city of heaven, and it's just going to be heaven, right? And so you and I need to understand, I don't think we're all going to get to live out in the middle of nowhere, away from each other. Where are we going to be? We're going to be surrounded by other brothers and sisters in Christ. We're going to be worshiping God. So I would encourage you to start to like some of these guys in here, because you might have to spend eternity next to them, okay? So when he went back to heaven, he went back there to represent us before God and to prepare a place for us. Now, that... uh, that brings a question, and I think it's kind of an interesting question that people always have, and um, some might not have it, some may have it. Hey, thanks for showing up, John. Yeah. Um, if you look at Jesus after he's gone back into heaven, sometimes we see, and he's talked about being seated, and sometimes he's standing up. How many of you know that you see both of those in Scripture? How many of you know why? And this is where your pastor is going to be honest with you. I'm going to give you an opinion, okay? I'm going to show you the difference, and then I'm going to give you an opinion. Uh, And this is where, you know, good books are written because pastors know things and they sell a bunch of books. But I'm not, a, I'm not a good pastor, and I'm not looking to make a bunch of money. I'm going to give you my opinion of sometimes why he is seated and sometimes why he is standing that we see. All right, so let me show you the difference. Uh, Jesus sitting down. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. This is after he's gone back into heaven. It says, The Son of Man is a radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. This is Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Sustaining all things by the power of His words. After He had provided purifications for sin, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So there's Jesus seated, right? He's now back up into heaven and He's seated. Uh, in Mark chapter 16, verse 19, it says, After the Lord Jesus Christ had spoken to them, He was taken up into heaven and He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, right? So He's sitting, da- sitting down. Now, what else is he doing? Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. You don't have to jump either. You can just wait and let me read through these. Hebrews chapter 11. It says, day after day, every priest stands and performs their religious duties. Again and again, they offer sacrifices, the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Now, they're talking about earthly sanctuaries, right? Earthly sacrifices. They do. They perform duties over and over again, making sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. What was the key phrase there? None of which can forgive sins. None of which can forgive sins. Now there's going to be a transition. But when this great high priest, who are they talking about now? Jesus, right? Earthly uh, priest, 
make sacrifice over and over and over again, none of which could uh, provide uh, forgiveness for even one sin. But this great high priest, I'm in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12, but when this great high priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Because by one sacrifice, he, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. All right? So why did Jesus sit down? Because his work was done. His salvation work was done. All right? If you look at it, uh, he came. He came to die and to pay the price for the sins of the world. What did Jesus say on the cross? It is finished. All right? His work was done. The illustration was a priest never went into the Holy of Holies, never went in there uh, and sat down. It wasn't something they just rolled in. They were always doing something. Does that make sense? And there were even times that, 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 that when they sent them into one space and one time, once a year, they would actually tie a rope on the priest's leg. And if he stopped moving, that meant God had killed him because he had too much sin in his life. And so if, 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 if the priest stopped nibbling on the rope, they knew drag that sucker out, right? All right? And, and so the priest, when they went in to do their priestly duties, they didn't go in there and kick back and sit down. Why? Because their work was never done, right? But Jesus' work was done. And that's why positionally speaking uh, and in practice, Jesus is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's not my opinion, by the way. That's what Scripture says. We're going to get to my opinion here in a second. All right, so let me give you another idea. Now, and, and I think it's good for us to point out as we think about this, that for most people, for a lot of people, there are about two letters that are going to keep them from getting to heaven. Two letters. And the letters are N and E. Most people want to get to heaven based on what they do. But the only way to really get to heaven is based on what Christ has done. Does that make sense? See, most guys you and I can encounter who may talk about, uh, yeah, I don't go to church much. They're, in the back of their mind, they're thinking, I'm not as bad as most people. You know, I'm not Hitler, right? Uh, I'm not Charles Manson. Uh, they're talking about what they do instead of what Christ has done for them. So let me give you another one. Uh, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. All right, so he's making intercession for them. Uh, look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. This is based on what Christ has done, not what I have to do. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. He says, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. How many of you know that as a believer, your goal is to not sin. Okay, there's only about eight of you, all right? Guys, I want you to know that's your goal, all right? That's your goal. Your goal is not to do as Paul talked about uh, in a hyperbolic sense in Hebrews chapter, in Romans chapter 6, where he said, shall we sin all the more so that grace may abound? I know some of you guys live in that world, right? Uh, remember, what, how many of you remember what Paul said right after that? May it never be. <laughs> May it never be. Now, there is a reality because he was dealing with some people when they realized that they were forgiven 
and they were introduced for the first time to grace, they were like, man, this is awesome. Let's let grace abound. Well, how can grace abound? If my sin abounds all the more. So the more I sin, the more grace I get. Isn't that awesome? Can you imagine us rolling in every day, you know, just like slapping somebody in the face? I'm forgiven for that. Isn't that awesome? You know, or whatever else we would do on Friday or Saturday night that we wouldn't be happy about, right? Uh, he said, no. He says, I write this to you that you may not sin. That's our goal, guys. The goal for you today is the same goal as a believer in Christ, is the same goal you had last week or yesterday or the day before, that you would make it through a full day without sinning. But that verse doesn't stop there. It goes on and says, but when we do sin, right? When we do sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the world. So Jesus has finished his work. The goal for us is that we wouldn't sin, but when we do sin, we have Jesus as the atoning sacrifice. He's paid for that. Now, I love that uh, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. Uh, there's a word that is used there that basically says Jesus is our attorney in the Greek. That it's a courtroom scene that John is referring to there. And in that courtroom scene that John is referring to, it is we are standing there in the court, God is the judge, and Satan is our accuser. And Satan looks over and says, uh, by the way, God, this one you call your son, John Mark, can I tell you what he's done? And Satan begins to list off all the sins that I've committed and sins I've committed and sins I've committed. And then all of a sudden the judge says, all right, the prosecutor's finished. Now for the defense, Jesus says, yep, he's guilty of all of those. But remember, that's what these nail scars are. And so that's where Jesus comes alongside us and says he is the atoning sacrifice. He says, he basically, Jesus looks and says, Dad, John Mark's guilty of every one of those sins. But they've already been paid for. No need for double jeopardy, right? They've already been paid for. When were they paid for? They were paid for on the cross. So, now... As we move on through, we continue to see uh, Jesus. Go back to Acts chapter You don't have to go back to it. Let me just read this. Uh, here's go to Acts chapter 1. Let me just read it over you. He says, They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, and suddenly two men dressed in white stood before them, said, Men of Galilee. And they said, uh, uh, Why do you stand here looking into the skies? Then he gives them a promise, basically. This same Jesus, whom you have seen taken from you up into heaven, will come back someday. And he will what? And as you have seen him in heaven, he will come back to you in the same way he came from, went up into heaven. So that is the promise that Jesus would come. So what, it, what is our call? What should we do now? Well, if Jesus has been sitting a number of times, there are other times that we can see Jesus standing. Probably the most marked example is Stephen stoning. How many of you remember Stephen Stone? He's one of those first deacons. Anybody in here want to stone a deacon? That would be a fun weekend. Uh, Stephen preached the gospel. It says, as Stephen was ready to die, he opened his eyes and he looked into heaven and he saw Jesus standing. Now we've seen 
several times Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne, seated at the right hand of the Father, seated at the right hand of the Father. Then all of a sudden Stephen, one of God's saints, is about to die and he looks up and Jesus is standing up. Anybody have an opinion? That's my opinion. That's it. You, you just nailed it right there. It, is that Jesus, remember, he's been preparing a place for Stephen. Now, it wasn't long. He didn't have, it, Stephen's a little house, by the way. By the time he was saved, he became a deacon, then he went to heaven. It, it's going to be a little house. It might just be frames. <laughs> uh, but I, I believe, that's my opinion, is that Jesus knew when his time was going to come. And so when you and I, those who he's already finished the work for, Okay, now I wouldn't want to carry this too far, but it is a beautiful picture of Stephen who is being stoned at the hands of sinful men. Even one dude named Saul is holding the coats um, that, uh, that Jesus stood up to welcome one of his, his children into heaven. And so the, the reason why Jesus sat down is because his work was done, paving the way for children of God to come to him. When does he stand up? when he receives one of us into heaven. Now, that, uh, that means he's standing up and sitting down a lot, right? Because a lot of people are, a lot of Christians are dying around the world. But that's, that's just my idea. That's my thought. It's a great picture. You look in the Old Testament, uh, the psalmist said, uh, how precious uh, in God's sight is the death of one of his children, one of his loved ones, right? That sure plays into the idea that, man, anytime a saint uh, dies, it's a big thing in heaven. It's a big thing in heaven. All right, so Jesus has gone into heaven. The angel said, don't stand here looking into heaven. Kind of like what D.L. Moody said. Listen, we don't need a bunch of men having mountaintop experiences that are no earthly good. That's the old idea. So what are we supposed to do? Let me just roll these through you uh, pretty quickly in a few minutes. What are we supposed to do now? First of all, he says, we're not supposed to stand here and to gaze into heaven. We do that on Sunday. So here's what, here's what we should do we got to get back to the priorities. I, I read an article over the weekend, uh, someone else may have read it, that our military uh, is really focusing their spending. Did anybody else read that, uh, that they're focusing their spending? They're killing a bunch of, uh, uh, of arms programs or other expenditures, and they're focusing on six, the six most important things to win the battles ahead. In other words, they're, they're, they're not going to create a thousand weapons. They're going to they're narrow it down. They're going to make uh, the soldier more lethal. They're going to have more directed and guided missiles. Does that make sense? It was, that was the whole point, is, is they were getting rid of a lot of uh, programs. Now, I will tell you, part of what I was reading that is, as a pastor, I've been through these transitions. Uh, we've got people in our church that work for the Raytheons in the area that could get laid off because some of these defense systems, uh, we've seen this happen. But I thought it was interesting that the military said that we've got, we spend too much money and too much time and too much energy on too many things that aren't as effective as they could be. That sounds like every organization we've ever operated in, right? But especially anything related to the government. They said, we're going to go back to the six priorities. And as I was reading that article, I thought about us as a church. You know, if we aren't careful as a church, we can do a thousand things instead of focusing on our priorities, right? 
instead of focusing on, on our priorities. Now, Vacation Bible School is not one of those. Everybody wants to say Vacation Bible School because we literally see hundreds of kids saved. That's a priority. But I will tell you what we've also encountered as we've had to cancel things in our building there are things that just suck us dry with time and energy and facility staff that make no difference in the kingdom of God, but that is someone's passion and priority. How many of you know what I'm talking about? And you call them and say, hey, our building is uninhabitable, and they get mad. You know, you're like, well, what do you want us to do about that? See, the point is, if we aren't careful, we will lose our way and forget what the priorities of the church are what the priorities of, of the believers are. And Justin and I, we sat in here uh, with the staff yesterday at a luncheon. I had all the ministers and all the staff in there. I said, I, I essentially said, we've got a great opportunity, and I put it exactly this way, and a wonderful excuse to get back to the main thing. To get back to the main thing. And so we are looking at this as it's going to be a hard summer for us. It's going to be a difficult summer for our church. It is. I want you to know it'll be a difficult year for our church. But it's a great opportunity for us to refocus, to say this is a priority. This is worth bringing back. And so let me give you some things that we're supposed to be doing. Instead of just standing and looking in heaven, uh, uh, one is we better carry on the mission. We better carry on the mission and the Great Commission. I won't go read the Great Commission to you, but in Acts chapter 5, verse 28, it doesn't, it's not long. Uh, Acts chapter 2, we see Peter's preaching. Pentecost, Acts chapter 3, Peter's preaching. Uh, Acts chapter 4, Peter's preaching. How many of you noticed? He's preaching the gospel, right? Acts chapter 5, uh, what happens? They begin to stir all of Jerusalem up. The, uh, the, the, the big dogs in town, the same ones that delivered uh, Jesus into the hands of sinful men and Roman, the Romans and Pilate nailed him to the cross, those same guys have called Peter and John in and said, we don't want you to preach anymore, right? What did Peter and John say? Is it better for us to obey God or man? And so what do they do? They go right out and they start preaching again. These guys call them back in, right? And here's what they say in Acts chapter 5, verse 28. They said, we gave you strict orders not to teach in his name. He said... Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make, listen to this, us guilty of this man's blood. What is he saying? You guys are terrible at following instructions. Guys, my prayer for our church this summer is that we are terrible at following instructions. That we get back to the main thing. That we get back to sharing the gospel and reaching lost people for Christ. Here's another. So what, is, what are we supposed to do? carry on the mission. That is it. We are to preach and to teach. Here's number two. Uh, we have to keep on meeting together. Where? I don't know. How? I don't know. But you got to do it. If you're in a life group, if you're in a home group, keep meeting together. I want you to know there's a promise that we were given that Christ, this same Christ, went into heaven, will come again someday, right? But there was also a prohibition to every guy in this room and every person in this church it doesn't matter what happens. You don't stop meeting together. You say, where do you find that? Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. You might want to write it down. He says, let us not give, meeting, give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another all the more as we see the day approaching. What's the prohibition? 
don't give up meeting together. We've got to come together. We've got to worship. We've got to sing. We've got to study God's word. That's the prohibition. Don't, whatever we do, don't give up meeting together. Now notice, it's an option because what did he say? As some are in the habit of doing, right? What does that mean? It shouldn't shock us from time to time that people are real faithful to our life group or real faithful to church for a year or two years or five years or eight years and then they drift away for a season and they stop meeting together. You say, Pastor, that doesn't upset you. It doesn't make you mad. Well, no, it disappoints me more than anything for them, right? But if all the way back in the New Testament, people had already started doing that and some of them had seen the risen Jesus, how much more sorry are they in their faith, right? So it shouldn't surprise us today. And I'll have people from time to time come, man, I just don't get it. You know, I don't get it. Um, Jean and I were in conversation the other, the other, the other day about her, her life group that meets at 11. They were running 40, 45 or something like that. The last couple of times they've met in homes or different places, they've been in the mid-20s. And she's been a little disappointed which I actually is not a bad gig when all of a sudden, instead of you've told everybody's gotten their pattern in at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning, now you're just gonna send an email out that says we're all gonna meet on Sunday night at five o'clock. Well, some people can't do that, right? 11 o'clock was good. So we, we were talking through it, but for us, it's one thing to not be able to meet together. If we're in some place where the church was persecuted and we couldn't just get together, but we have that opportunity. So guys, understand the first thing that we have to do, and this is going to be our priority as a staff going forward this year, is we're going to keep sharing the gospel. We're going to keep preaching the word wherever we can, however we can. Second thing, we're going to create as many opportunities for our people and you and me to meet together. All right? Sunday nights might come back into play. Friday nights might come back into play. Wednesday nights might come back into play in a big way. We're going to do something. All right? Uh, here's another thing that we're doing. So number one priority is we have to share the gospel. Number two priority is we can't stop meeting together. Number three priority is we got to keep on rejoicing. We've got to keep on rejoicing. You say, where do you see that? Luke chapter 24, verse 5. It says, uh, when he had led them out into the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. I love that. He blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then notice what it says in verse 52. They worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. They returned to Jerusalem with great joy and they stayed continually at the temple praising God. So they're meeting together with great joy. So priority number one, keep sharing the gospel. Priority number two, keep meeting together. Priority number three, keep rejoicing. Keep rejoicing, regardless of what has taken place. Let me give you a fourth one, and I could give you a bun. Stick to the course. Stick to the course. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 to 3, here's what it says. Therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders us and the sin that so easily entangles us. And let us run with perseverance the race that is marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So we have to stick to the course. Why? Because we have a great cloud of witnesses that have gone on before us. Let me tell you what. 
there are men and women in heaven that when we think about some of the difficulties we're going to experience this summer, they would be saying, really? So you think that's hard? Yeah. Uh, they burned me at a stake because I wouldn't recant. They stoned me in the public square because I wouldn't renounce Jesus' name. And you think you've got it tough. They killed my kids in front of me. They crucified me upside down. They drowned me. Those are the people that are up there watching us. And they're saying, can you stay the course for a couple of months through a little hardship? I pray that at, Cotton, at Cottonwood, our answer will be absolutely, absolutely. So guys, as we journey forward, this is a good opportunity for us to get back to the priorities, share the gospel, teach the word, meet together, rejoice, and stick to the course. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for the opportunity just to follow you and to walk with you. And God, we, um, we're going to give you the glory. God, we still don't understand why all this happened. But here's what I do believe, that if we will do all of those things at the end of the day, it's all going to be better. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.